This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. The fact that we still call the primary outputs of research in this day and age, we still call them papers, right? It's incredible. It's going to be amazing, Josh, when all science is communicated via podcast. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learn about the importance of open science and new initiatives to revolutionize the way scientific findings are shared. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 120. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, you drove over here through a hurricane. Dorian... Hurricane Dorian bearing down on the North Carolina coast. Although, don't worry too much. We are about 150 to 200 miles from the coast. Yeah, relatively safe. It was uh, lightly sprinkling. I don't even think I had to turn the windshield wipers on to the highest setting. So, we were all right. Uh, My kids were out of school today. (laughs) Why? That's what we do here. Okay. (laughs) It's not just for snow. Did you Uh, check for bread and milk? It sold out. Okay, perfect. Yep. It's a real emergency. We got ours over the weekend, just to be sure. (laughs) <laughs> what we we actually drink milk and oh, okay. bread yeah okay. but certainly uh hope things turn out well for those who are more in harm's way than we are absolutely we're thinking about the people in the bahamas for sure absolutely speaking of places that are not impacted by the hurricane dan we are headed to wisconsin in just a couple of days coming up and hopefully we're going to meet a few people i think we've gotten some friends of the show reaching out on twitter and via email so uh we will connect with you when we're in madison yeah, we're hoping to do a little meetup on Monday night, so check social media is the best way to hear about that. Monday what date? That's uh, Monday, September 8th. Although I say all this with the full realization that this episode may not even post before <laughs> September 8th, in which case, hopefully we had fun. We'll do what we can. We'll do what we can. Then, though, we do have a nice beer, and I pulled this beer out of the fridge because I thought now was one of our last chances to drink a summer seasonal Oh, good idea. Yeah, thing, things are starting to turn. I can feel the, the weather turning to fall. What did you bring us? So what I brought us today, Dan, this is from Ecliptic Brewing in Portland, Oregon. This is called the Flamingo Planet Guava Blonde Ale. You poured it in a glass for me. Thank you. Well, I thought since it was called a blonde ale, we might want to examine the coloration. And we do. It is hazy. Or is it just condensation on my glass? Well, no, it's hazy. Well, I don't know, Dan. Let me tell you about this beer because I actually poured this for you before you got here. So when I opened these beers, uh, the first one, I don't want to say it spewed all over the place. <laughs> there were no survivors. Uh, so I don't know whether these cans got uh, bumped or sloshed around quite a bit on their journey to North Carolina, or this is just a frothy beer, Dan, but this is one of those I had to pour it and then dump some of the foam off and then pour it again. Uh, the second can, I was much more careful in slowly popping the top. How much botulinum is in here, Josh? <laughs> we'll find out tomorrow. But anyway, Dan, taste it. So we got some guava. Um, this does say, the marketing speak, easy drinking blonde ale brewed with guava and lightly hopped with amarillo and crystal hops. So are you getting guava and light hops? Maybe this beer uh, is not my favorite. Okay. And it has an earwax bitter aftertaste mm. to me. And it's not bitter the way that I like bitter from a, an IPA. And maybe it's just my tongue today because I did burn my tongue. But it, it's got a weird aftertaste to me. You know, it's interesting you say that it is, it is bitter because this is lightly hopped. So you would think... 
It's got to be me. How's it taste to you? Do you do you get that same sensation? You know, I'm not getting overly bitter, but I guess I could maybe get a little bit of a soapy character in the background. I, I attribute it. There's almost a little funky taste that I attribute to probably the guava. To it being spoiled in the back <laughs> of your fridge. I want to like it. It's a cool looking can. It looks nice. I think I have to agree. It's not my favorite. Okay. Moving right along. I'll remind people, Josh, that we have an ethanol map now. And I'm taking a look at the Oregon section of our ethanol map. I only see a single beer that we've had from Oregon so far. And it is the Rogue Dead Guy Ale from Rogue Brewers on the Bay. That was one of the first craft microbrews that I ever had. Maybe amazing. while in grad school. Amazing. Yeah, this is our first one from Portland, so far as I can tell. So uh, I will add that to the map. Fantastic. So check that map out, hellophd.com slash ethanol. Dan, you spent a lot of time entering all these beers in. Hundreds of hours, probably. That's not even true. A uh, few minutes. Uh, well, this is good to know, too, because we do hear back from time to time of listeners who enjoy the beer recommendation. So if you vaguely remember us talking about a beer one time and you don't want to dig back through past episodes, you can go to the beer map on the website. I got to tell you, we're doing a terrible job in the Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Dakota, Nebraska area. So we have work to do. We have places to fill. Well, we mentioned we are heading out to Madison, Wisconsin, and the impetus for our trip is to actually visit in person some of our friends at Promega. And Promega wants you to know that sometimes there are specific techniques that give you problems in the lab, or maybe you're mentoring an undergrad who needs to learn some basic molecular biology techniques. Uh, But either way, you are not alone. Promega has some help for you in the form of their Student Resource Center. They've got resources on all kinds of cellular and molecular biology techniques, which includes cell culture, reporter assays, all types of PCR, cloning, and actually, Dan, they even have sections on job applications and interviews. Amazing. And you can find that all at promega.com slash hellophd. And now, Josh, on with the show. All right, Dan, I am really excited about this episode. We cover a lot of ground here on Hello PhD, and I think the beauty of doing this as a partnership between you and I is we certainly have some overlapping interests, and, and those revolve around making sure grad students have as painless of an experience as possible. We're trying to minimize suffering for graduate students. That is something we both care about. Both care about that. Uh, but then there are other topics, I think, Dan, that that tend to be more near and dear to my heart and others that tend to be more near and dear to your heart. And I know this topic, Dan, of open science is something you've always been passionate about. It's true, although I feel like I didn't know a lot about it. I came in hearing the phrase open science and thinking, well, all science is open, so I don't know why we need a movement for this. I actually found out about our guest today, John Tennant, because he wrote uh, an op-ed that was included in the Washington Post. And as you know, Josh, I'm a ravenous news consumer. And it was about peer review and about some of the problems with peer review. And some of the arguments in there were interesting and compelling. I thought, we need to call this guy. So uh, I looked him up and found him online. And I found out that he had devoted a lot of work and a whole website and several other parts of uh, web platforms to this concept of open science. And I thought, well, this must be important, but I don't know why. So I called him up. Yeah, and I'm really excited to share this interview you did, Dan, with John. I know I learned a lot, and it's just so evident listening to him that this is a topic he's extremely passionate about and something he has spent a great deal of his professional time, at least recently, thinking about, studying, and and trying to catalyze change. Awesome. Well, let's let him explain what open science means, and then you and I can talk afterward. Hi, uh, my name is John Tennant. 
and I'm a paleontologist by training. Now I'm a research fellow at the Center for Research and Interdisciplinarity here in Paris, um, where I'm working on the future of open scholarly communication. Well, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time and matching up time zones. Uh, <laughs> thank you. I saw an op-ed you wrote in the Washington Post, so we're going to get to that. But that's how I, how you and I got connected, and I started reading a lot about this work you're doing in open science. And my first thought was, well, isn't all science open? So can you just start us off talking about what it is I think a lot of scientists believe about the openness of science, and then about how the reality has actually shaped up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, so this is part of like an ongoing debate about what open science really is. So in other fields, such as like open education and open, um, open source, for example, Whatever openness is, it's really well-defined. When a lot of people hear the term open science, they don't really get what it means. For a lot of people, it's almost a tautology. You know, like you said, it's like, wait, isn't all science open anyway? And then you get this brilliant opportunity to sort of help people understand how science really works. And the fact that it's actually, we're not doing too well as a sort of global society in how we're communicating research. So open science is a sort of uh, counterculture movement to revolutionize the way we do work. So for example, what a lot of people don't realize is despite the fact that most research that scientists do is funded by the public, and yet the public do not have access to most of the results of that research. So when you say results, you don't just mean they don't get to read the papers because they don't, they're behind paywalls. But you're also talking about something more than that. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the, the research papers are the sort of core outputs of of a research project, you know, you, you typically the processes, you know, the, the sort of idealized processes that you have a hypothesis, you gather some data to test it, you get some results, and then you produce a research paper from that. Of course, the ideology is completely different from the actual reality of the situation. And the fact is that whatever ends up in the published research record is only sort of um, a facade of the reality of actually what happened. In, uh, throughout the entire research process. You don't ever see the things which went wrong, for example, or the um, the results that people maybe don't want to show you. They, they didn't come out positive, for example. You know, It's only the sort of shiny, polished version at the end, and you get this little PDF, and then you can't even access it unless you are willing to pay 40 euros for a copy of the PDF. Um, so. let, let's pause there for one second. The difference between what actually happened and what we publish. I think everybody listening is familiar with the idea that experiments fail all the time and experiments produce negative results all the time. Mm -hmm. Is it the fault of the researcher that that data is not more available? Or is it something you think that the publishers are doing? Or is it a combination? <laughs> yeah, with the, without running the risk of finger pointing, I think it's a combination of both. So if you speak to a publisher, they'll say, we only publish... The, re the results that the researchers want to communicate. And then if you speak to a researcher, they'll say, oh, we, only, we can only share the results that are positive because they're the only ones that will be accepted by the journals. So it's a sort of vicious cycle that people are caught in. So, it, you know, for example, a, uh, a journal has an obligation to its readership and to those who manage it to, be a, to sort of act as a commodity. It has to have a brand, it has to sell. And in order to sell, it has to rely on generating its sort of um, independence as a brand. It has to publish new and novel, exciting results and all of these things to make it stand out. Now, 
the things which improve the marketability marketability of a journal are completely different to what the scientific process is, right? You know, scientific pro- uh, the scientific process is all about deduction, rationalization, gathering evidence, and finally falsifying hypotheses until you end up with the truth. But sadly, you know, the, that sort of reality isn't particularly um, good to commercialize. And so there's this uh, rift where researchers will select the little bits of the research that fit into a nice narrative, and then they'll send that to a journal if the journal thinks that the, um, the story, essentially, is good enough, irrespective of what the actual sort of value or quality of the research process is, then they're more, more likely to accept it because that's the sort of system that we're locked into now. And it feels like this evolved out of the way that science developed. So I'm, I'm thinking all the way back to the 1600s or so when it was meetings of the Royal Society and they got together and they <laughs> talked over some experiment they did on a dog. And <laughs> it, was, it was, at that point, it was a conversation. And so you could say, here are the five things I tried and here are the things that failed. And people were intimately knowledgeable about the way that the research progressed. When we moved into a published piece, I think at that moment, we had to cut down on the number of things we could talk about, right? Because now I've got to commit money to put it on paper. So that is I, that is where we are. I understand that we have a difference between the open communication we started with and that we believe mm-hmm. is good for science. And I, I think you could talk a little bit about why it's important to be open. What has changed that makes this the right time to rethink the openness of our publications? Right. So, I mean... We've already sort of mentioned it a couple of times. The fact that we still call the primary outputs of research in this day and age, we still call them papers, right? Yep. It's incredible. And we still publish them in journals. You know, these are concepts that were developed in, like you said, the sort of 17th century, way back in the history, like before the printing press. We have now this little tool, which I think we've all heard of, called the Internet and the World Wide Web. <laughs> I'm not familiar with it. No. No, no, I don't think so. Like, if, if I look around just the lab, which I'm in now, I, I look at the, the advanced machinery and equipment, which I'm surrounded by. And even this, I'm using a Bluetooth headset and I'm talking to someone 6,000 miles away and the quality is perfect. It's instantaneous. For some reason, we just have not done that in the scientific research communication system. If you even go back to like, it, it's sort of baffling when you go back and learn about a little bit about the history of the web, like, you know, um, the, the World Wide Web, as we sort of now know it, or like the, the earliest versions of it, were developed at CERN by researchers, by Tim Berners-Lee. And what he wanted to do was find an instantaneous and exceptionally low-cost way of transferring data and research outputs and just research articles to other scientists. And that's why the World Wide Web was built, for this instantaneous sharing of scientific knowledge. And yet, if we look back now, 20, 28 years later, We've actually gone backwards. We, we, we haven't done that. The, the only thing the web hasn't done is catalyze the free and instantaneous sharing of knowledge uh, or scientific knowledge. You know, we have things like adverts and clickbait and, you know, <laughs> you know petabytes of just nonsense out there. And it's, it's sort of bizarre how um, the very purpose that the Internet was built, we have failed to achieve. And, you know, what we still have instead is essentially an analog publishing system that replicated itself in a digital environment without actually being sort of born digital. And we're still suffering sort of through that right now. What is it that you think we are losing as a society 
and as scientists by operating under this old model of limiting our results and limiting the publication? I mean, oh goodness, there, there are sort of a lot of start at the top. Questions. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, the, 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 the a question I like to ask people sometimes, you know, is like, do you think that science can help make the world a better place? Do you think it can improve uh, society? Do you think it can improve the health of of humans um, and you know living standards? Do you think it can help with improving biodiversity and uh, environmental change? And everybody goes always, of course, yes, like of course it is. Like, otherwise, why would we be doing it? And then you say, okay, right, fine. But then by that same standard, you must admit that by doing research and communicating in a, in a very sort of selective way and preventing public access to, to the results of the knowledge that you've gathered, you're actively prohibiting science from being used to help improve society. Yeah, it is not a neutral decision. It yeah. has impacts. For example, I had an email the other day from a, from some uh, from a woman in um, somewhere in the Middle East, and she said that her husband passed away two years ago uh, from from cancer, and she tried as hard as she could to do research on the topic, but every time you know she wanted to, she came close to finding something that might be useful to help her understand what her husband was going through. There was a stupid paywall. It said, "Sorry, thirty-eight bucks. You got to pay this," and you know, obviously, she couldn't afford that. After her husband passed away, she set up like a uh, a patient advocacy group where they all now go around and they try and get access to these papers and share them around with people who need them. The fact is that there are real people out there who want access to this information, but for one reason or another, it's still locked away from them. And it's uh, it's a travesty. No, it absolutely is. And I've had those experiences where uh, somebody that you love gets sick with something that you don't know anything about. And the standard treatments don't exist or don't help. And it, it's, it's a matter of life and death. It's, it's everything uh, inside you wants to find the most recent information. And especially as a scientist who knows that it's out there, I think there's also a barrier to even knowing that this research exists if you're just a member of the general public. But as a scientist who is not working at a university, getting access to those papers is really difficult. And that's that's how it's it's impacting the general public, where maybe the research, the things we already know, the the work that's already been done is not making it out to have an impact on people and patients. How is it impacting scientists? Um, well, it, it really depends on where you are. You know, scientists are a very diverse bunch of people. You know, if you are lucky. So, like, for example, I was at Imperial College in London during my PhD. And it's one of the top institutes in the world. In terms of getting access to the research I needed, it wasn't that difficult most of the time. And that was because we paid tens of millions of pounds every single year to these publishers to uh, have access to, to this work. But, you know, if you're in a lower income country, you know, if you're in uh, Southeast Asia or somewhere in uh, the you know, um, Sahara and Africa or across Latin America, for example, you're not going to have the same sort of privilege and uh, financial, yeah, sort of financial privilege that many of us in the Western world are sort of accustomed to. And if you need to do research on a particular topic, and your library just can't afford to subscribe to to some of the tens of thousands of journals that you might need access to, then you're screwed. Like that's it. Yeah. Like you just you you're you're actively prohibited from doing your work. Well, hopefully, people are understanding the difference between 
the the reality of science and and what an open world might look like but what are the solutions to this are there technologies are there decisions and agreements are there cultural changes that need to happen what do we do about this oh goodness right yeah i mean if if there were again start at the top and just be be complete (laughs) in your answer please sure i can try so there are many initiatives which are attempting to resolve little bits of this right now. There are sort of social movements that are trying to challenge the uh, the incentive system. So, for example, things like the San Francisco Declaration on Research Assessment is something that researchers or institutes can sign, where they say, we no longer buy into this idea that journals are functionally important for research assessment anymore. So that's sort of like trying to change this um, it doesn't matter where we publish sort of um, mentality anymore. That feels bold. Have people signed that? Yeah, thousands. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. It's really taking off now. And it's even becoming institutionally and nationally mandated in places now as well. Wow. So there's a big change to sort of change that research uh, evaluation culture right now. But as well as that, there are, there are sort of things which are working sort of from the bottom up, from the, yeah, from the bottom up as well. So, you know, we mentioned that there's a huge file draw problem. The fact is that if a result is not uh, deemed to be positive or or whatever, then it's just simply sort of filed away and you move on to the next experiment. But now there's a movement um, around pre-registration or registered reports. And what you do here is you essentially draft your protocol and your your methods, and then you submit this sort of provisional uh, methodology to a journal. And they... If they say, yeah, it's okay, um, what you do is you go back and then you start gathering all your data, you do your experiments and your analyses, and then irrespective of the results, then it can still be published within that journal. It's like a provisional acceptance. So it's a um, a methods-based acceptance rather than a results-based acceptance, if that makes sense. That sounds wild. And is that a peer-reviewed process? How do they decide whether they accept your research methods? Uh, yeah, it goes through a standard peer-review process, as always. So. I feel like this is um, a committee meeting, but for grown-ups, right? <laughs> it's it's the way that that you, as a graduate student, mm-hmm. you should be conducting your research. You should ha- make your plan, have mm-hmm. somebody look at it, uh, mm-hmm. and then move forward, and then you can report your results. But then we get to the level of being a principal investigator, and we say, uh, just take six months or five years to do your research. Let us know how it went. And, and then you go through the revision process, right? Where they say, oh, I wish that you had done this control in experiment number 248. And then you have to go back. How much better would it be to get that process worked out in advance? Oh, yeah, totally. Like, there are, there are little things you can do as well to sort of ease that process as well. So there's this, um, another movement around what are called micro-publications, where it, the idea is rather than performing hundreds of analyses and trying to craft them into like a beautiful story, you publish what are called um, single observable results. So every time you run an experiment, you publish it, you run another experiment and you publish it, you run another experiment and you publish it. And it gets through like this iterative review process. Every single publishable unit gets peer reviewed in the sort of traditional way. And then eventually it might be the case that all of these micro publications together end up telling a nice story. And when you can submit that to a normal journal, if you like, but irrespective of that, you have already got all of the information out there as fast as possible, as verified as possible, while in the still going the same sort of quality assurance checks that you might expect from a traditional review process. Does that get published in some new online forum? How does that work? 
Yeah, there, there are a couple of platforms that are doing this now. So, like, it, it's not taken off too much just yet, you know, because people are still addicted to the to journals. But there are platforms out there like um, Science Matters, um, which has been going for a few a few years now. Um, and then another one which is in development called Flashpub, for example. So people are beginning to see um, the value in this sort of thing. But the sort of um, cultural change around publication choice at the moment, you've got to be careful with being too disruptive because people then get a little bit scared, I guess. What, <laughs> of, what of scares meetings. them? So the fact is, you know, research is a hyper-competitive landscape. You know, we're, we're all fighting for a ever tighter pot of funding, fewer, fewer, fewer jobs with more people coming into the system. And if you don't play by the, uh, by the rules which is set for you, then you, you potentially risk everything. It's a real shame. So, you know, <laughs> there's this whole um, idea about you know the way in which we're we're evaluated. You know, if if you speak to uh, just basically anyone outside of research, they find this absolutely bonkers. You know, we are not primarily evaluated based on the quality of our research, but the venue in which we publish it. I still remember one of the first things my mum ever taught me was don't judge a book by its cover. And yet here we are within academia, you know, the supposed bastions of intellect <laughs> in our world. And yet they do exactly that. They say, oh, you published in journal X, Y, and Z. Therefore, your research must be of high quality without even reading it. And um, sadly, this is the way in which, you know, prestige, uh, jobs, and funding are all sort of distributed in this very superficial way. And people are terrified of deviating away from that. Is the path forward for scientists to stop publishing in those journals what is the solution here because clearly the the elseviers of the world are not going to give up the cash cow so it's not going to be a voluntary transition from the the publisher side what are we supposed to do about it, it i mean it's difficult right if you look at the history of for example open access in about 20 years oh 20 25 years of open access we've managed to make about 20 to 25% of global research open access. That's a growth of about 1% a year. So clearly, you know, things are going pretty slowly with whatever we've been doing now. You know, this is despite like all the advocacy, all the ranting, all the raging and everything. And everybody and, agreeing, I think, tacitly that this is a problem. And yet when it's time for me to get tenure, I want my paper in nature. Yeah. And, you know, I think what, what we've been seeing in academia is a sort of divide and conquer approach where publishers or whatever are very happy to take advantage of the confusion, the fact that we're all stupidly pressured for time to sort of continue exploiting this, uh, this sort of vicious cycle. And I think this is one of the most important things. So like for culture change to happen, you have to be able to sort of leverage collective action, I think, in some cases. So you're not isolated and you're part of like an actual movement. And one of the most exciting things i know in this space is an initiative called free our knowledge it's a campaign um started by a friend in australia um cooper smelt and he realized this he was like look we've been fighting for change for 20 25 years but nothing's really happened well okay a lot has happened but it's been very slow and it's because of this you know like what we mentioned before about this whole fear of being locked in the fact that everything's in like a vicious cycle um, and it's very difficult to advocate for change without putting yourself at risk so he's built like this campaign where you can pledge, for example, to not do peer review for closed access journals, not to submit to closed access oh, journals. Oh, wow. But you do so privately. 
and your name only becomes public once a, thre- a predefined threshold of people within your community have also signed that pledge. So, for example, if um, you know if you're in the field of psychology and there's a hundred thousand researchers, once fifty thousand researchers have signed the pledge, a uh, switch gets flicked, boom, and all of a sudden your pledge becomes active. And all of a sudden, you're part of a majority of researchers which have pledged not to submit their work to the Alcibiades and the Springers out there. I see. So in the meantime, you are still doing peer review for mm-hmm. these journals. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But once you attain a quorum, everybody says, mm-hmm. now we're done. And and you do that with the confidence that all of these other people who have agreed ethically that mm-hmm. this is the right choice now have the sustained force to make a change. Yep, that's it. Kind of cool. It could be a game changer. <laughs> it, it only launched, uh, I think, about yeah a month ago. You know, we, we need this sort of, you know, this collective support. You know, like I said, if I look at the researchers all around all around me who I speak to every day, they all know the problems. But, you know, people are tired. You know, <laughs> people yeah. have different priorities and different obligations. And um, all of a sudden, asking them to potentially do something which might mean that in six months' time when they go for a promotion, they don't get it because they published in the wrong journal and now they have to struggle to pay rent or feed their kids. It's like, yeah, I fully empathize with that, actually. It's like it is difficult to change on an individual level. But if you're part of a majority all of a sudden, then that is powerful. So That's amazing. So you have an online platform for training students and scientists of all disciplines in the concepts of open science, isn't that right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, this open science thing, it's everywhere, right? No one really knows what it is, but it's everywhere. And it comes in, like, a million different flavors. You know, a few, a few years ago, it was really beginning to take off, you know, the European Commission here in Europe were saying that we need to be training our graduates and our postdocs and our students with open science skills. But they weren't really saying much about how to do that. So we saw a little space there to to build something. So, you know, me and um, a bunch of basically friends, we just sort of got together and we started building, you know, we call it the Open Science MOOC, which traditionally stands for Massively Open Online Course. But we operate more as a sort of peer-to-peer learning community. So we consider ourselves like the Massively Open Online Community. And the idea is that, you know, basically anyone can join this community and they can the boundaries between sort of developers and learners and teachers are all very fluid. And the idea is that you can just sort of come into the space and you can learn what you want. You can contribute in some other way if you want. You can just do a little bit of networking. If you just need mutual support or something over uh, an issue you're having at work, then this is sort of what we're creating. It's it's like a, a little online space where people who want to learn things like how to, for example, make their data open source, or maybe the best way to do that, or you know, the best place to share their data um, and make sure that other people can find it. You know, we're just teaching people little ways to to optimize their research. And it's quite quite good fun. <laughs> and is it for just for uh, people in the EU or do you think that it has worldwide applicability? We have people from all around the world. Um, on So, for example, we, we have a Slack channel, we have a GitHub channel, and we have the MOOC platform itself, and we have Twitter. And we definitely have people from all around the world. We have a lot of people working on elements all around translation teams, 
working on translating like the English content, so the core content that we make. They're translating into Russian, into Portuguese, into French, into Chinese, um, as many different languages as we sort of can. And the the interest that we've had just in the, we've only launched about eight or nine months ago, and we've had so much interest from people since then because you know what, what we're doing is we're not sort of creating like another just another platform or something like that and where people have to come in and log in and then it's like another isolated silo but we're trying to create something that connects people and i think people really value that which is quite nice and it may not be the current generation of of principal investigators who make this change but i think the people you're reaching are the next generation and hopefully as they go through this process they're going to pick up those habits and and start while they're still graduate students yeah i mean the younger we can get them the better really you know i was on a, a podcast a few weeks ago speaking with uh, like high school children about these issues and it's fantastic like you know if you think about the the generation of students which are you know just about to go to university they've never known a world without the internet have they and just trying to explain to them about how the current sort of scientific process works, they get completely baffled by it. They're like, wait, what? why would I spend 40 euros on a copy of a PDF when I can just download it free from somewhere else? You know, I, I don't know if you saw it. Was, it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> the, uh, the other day, uh, one of the big publishers, Elsevier, um, you know, everyone's favorite, they were boasting online about how, uh, how technologically advanced they were. They were like, we provide enriched semantic deep linking into all of our articles, you know, demonstrating our financial commitment to this. Like we have 5,000 technologists working on this advanced technology. And it was like, wait, you embed links? And it's links. HTML? You just described links. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? And like, this is a sort of level of technological innovation which we're, which we're at in this industry. And it, it's bafflingly just, yeah, it's, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> We've created a portable document format, we call it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, exactly. So if people want to, they can go to opensciencemooc.eu. Is that the best place to get connected? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the platform is sort of, it's distributed across several different elements. We have like the sort of landing page website, which is the one you just described. The actual course itself happens on a uh, open source training platform called Eliadomy. And then all of the development happens on GitHub in the open. And then we also have like an open Slack channel, which has almost a thousand people in at the moment where you can just come along and, and chat away and follow development and conversations around it in real time. So multiple ways to get involved depending on how people <laughs> like to consume information. If you're more relational, maybe get into that Slack channel. If mm -hmm. you are somebody who wants to consume a course, then the uh, Open Science MOOC website mm -hmm. is probably the, the right place to go sure and if you don't want to even do it as a course like all of the content which we produce is available outside of the platform because you know, i know a lot of people don't necessarily like logging into things these days so we just make sure that all of the training content is openly licensed and freely available in places where you don't have to sign up as well to put a bow on this the trainees who are listening today, what is mm -hmm. the one thing you wish they would do today to to just start on this journey? Two things. So one would be go out there and read as much as you can about this sort of ongoing revolution in open science and find out if it interests you. And no worries if it doesn't. So go and equip yourself with some good knowledge and some good skills to empower yourself to become an agent of change, if you wish. 
So there are, you know, despite the sort of doom and gloom of, of much of what we've discussed, there are small tangible steps that every single person can take without putting themselves at risk and which can actually be really, really good for you. Um, you just have to sort of equip yourself with a little bit of knowledge for this. That's, that's number one. And the second, which is a little bit more difficult, to take a deep look inside of yourself and figure out why you are here doing research, wh what you want to achieve, and how you're going to achieve it, and whether or not the way in which you're practicing your research is aligned with those values. And if not, then how can you close that gap? You know, I, th I think every single researcher starts off their career with a love of discovery and curiosity and wanting to share what they discover with the world. And at some point, they become disillusioned when they realize it's about chasing impact factors. And at some point, you have to ask, are you satisfied with that distinction? And what can you do to, again, change it? But you have to sort of reflect deeply on, on what it is that you want and who you are as a person and the values and the principles by which you're going to live your life as a researcher. I love that answer. I what I expected you to say was go to opensciencemooc.eu, um, and and you didn't. And and the reason I think that's important is because the the trainees that are listening right now are still early enough in their scientific career that they have a tangible grasp on that love of discovery that you mentioned. I think if we were talking to somebody who had tenure for the last forty years, you they'd be more distant mm -hmm. from from that initial spark. And they'd be more entrenched in the status quo of how things are. Mm -hmm. The trainees that are listening, I think, have this opportunity to say, hey, wait a minute, I'm looking at my PI and I don't want my career to be in fear of getting scooped. And I don't want my tenure mm -hmm. to be based on whether or not I published in the right journal. I want to to live this this life of, you know, I think it's a pretty amazing amazing career to be in where you get to go study something you're passionate about, and then go talk about it. And, and in that process, change the world. So, John, thank you so much for taking the time to open our eyes to open science. Um, <laughs> oh, is, thank you for letting me ramble. <laughs> is, there, is there any social media accounts that you want to list for people to be able to find you online? Sure. If people want to get me on, on Twitter, they can get me a proto-hedgehog. Don't ask. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the, the easiest way to get hold of me. Like my DMs are open. You know, the, the Slack channel I mentioned earlier, I can, I can send you a link for this. It's an open Slack channel. Anyone can join. And, you know, there are hundreds of brilliant and beautiful people in that channel who are just waiting to chat if you need to. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you as well. Dan, that was a fantastic interview. Thanks for doing that. I was exciting to talk to him and I learned a ton. What stood out to you, Josh? Wow. So many things. Dan, you actually got on to me about this, but I was listening to the interview for the first time driving home, and I was just getting so excited with these thoughts that I had that I was, at every stoplight, I was pulling out the notes app on my phone and and dictating them. Okay, you were dictating, because you said you were dictating. taking notes on the way home, and I thought, that's not a safe activity. <laughs> I had my mole skin out, and I was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sketching out Driving with your knees. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the thing that really jumped out to me, and this is something I'm going to remember is when he mentioned that old adage that we've all heard and that we all would ascribe to, and that is, don't judge a book by its cover. However, as he mentioned, that seems to be just the thing that we do as scientists when we look at manuscripts, or even we look at people's CVs and we make these judgment calls based on 
the amount of times they've published in, in science, in nature, in cell, even if we don't know anything about the study, uh, there's some, or we haven't read it, and oftentimes we don't, we think, oh, wow, that's a nature study. That's got to be really good. Yeah, and I think uh, this is especially pernicious in cases where it's a, a scientist in a field that maybe not a, an exact overlap with yours. If you were look assessing another scientist who worked on whatever the, you know, you worked on Francis Sella when you were in under or in graduate school. If you were looking at somebody else's research and it was in Nature or in Journal of Microbiology or whatever it was, you would be able to assess the quality of that science. If you were assessing a scientist who worked on something that I worked on uh, in the cytoskeleton, only the journal title is really your entrance into how good that research was. And so I think this gets worse the further we are from the actual overlap of the field that we're in. So when we're doing promotions, when we're thinking about tenure, when we're thinking about hiring, and you've got a whole group of people in a department deciding on something that they may not know a lot about other than the title of the journal, that's where it gets bad. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think what can happen is what we're, what we're doing subconsciously um, or even consciously is we're ascribing some sort of value to science or a certain, a certain quality metric to a research study based on the competitiveness of the journal that it, that it is in. Almost as if, okay, well, this science was published in Cell or in Nature, so therefore it must have really been put through the ringer. I mean, the peer review must have just been way more thorough than maybe this other paper in PLOS One over here. I can say one thing that I learned from your discussion with John is there's a lot of factors that go into what papers get published in certain journals that don't all have to do with the quality or rigor of the science. It's so true, Josh. And you know what it reminds me of? Something that's near and dear to your heart, which is the way that you are looking at the GRE. It's the exact same. It's a parallel process. We need to bring in students. We don't have the time to assess the full scope of their personal history. We outsource the measurement of their quality of a, as a student to this score, and we move on because we've got so many things to go through. We're doing the same thing with a journal title uh, for our hiring processes because we assume the reviewers must have done their work, and so therefore uh, I defer to them on this decision. Yeah, and, and you know, Dan, the opposite scenario is important too. Is, is what about the researcher who publishes in the open access journal that maybe isn't the, the high-tier journal? I can say for a fact, Dan, you know, I've published in PLOS One before, uh, recently, like in the last year or two, and it is not true at all that no peer review happens. I actually remember a very rigorous, uh, a very thorough set of reviewers who reviewed our paper, and we went through a set of revisions before our study was actually published. And so it's not true at all to think, oh, well, these open access... And, and Dan, back in the day when we were grad students, you know, some of these open access journals like PLOS One and others were brand new on the scene. And I can actually remember some of the sort of offhanded jokes that I would hear faculty say about, oh, yeah, the, that's the journal that doesn't actually review the papers. Almost like, oh, yeah, we just throw anything in there. Granted, the landscape, I think, has changed quite a bit for some of these journals, but there almost was this lesser than uh, viewpoint on some of the journals, at least in the early days. Well, and this is what I loved about the movement to help researchers step off of that top tier journal track, not top tier journal. I'm doing air quotes and nobody can see me. <laughs> uh, this idea that if, if we say we all believe in publishing and open access, but I can't be the only one who steps off of the ship that is, <laughs> is currently sailing, getting a lot of people to agree, maybe quietly, 
that we want to move in this direction. And then on some date, when there's enough groundswell, when there's enough force behind us, we all move together. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting concept, and I hope that they get enough momentum to make those types of changes. Yeah, and John mentioned some, some ways that was playing out in the real world. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it, I think it remains to be seen whether that's a viable path toward, toward breaking this habit. Yeah, it's a structural change that, that needs to happen, and, and those tend to be fairly slow in academia. You mentioned the, the GRE, Dan, and this topic was one that directly reminded me of some of the change that's taken place with regard to graduate admissions, at least in the biological biomedical sciences, moving away from the GRE. And I can remember the research came out that, yeah, maybe this isn't the best way of doing things, but it certainly was not an instantaneous change. And in fact, I can remember... At the very beginning, there were one or two programs that kind of made the leap and made the change. And it was a big process and very isolating experience for them at first because, you know, like John was talking about with faculty or, or PIs who would decide to step off the traditional publishing track, there's a risk. There's an inherent risk to going against the grain. But eventually with this GRE thing, once enough schools did it, that became the motivating factor for a lot of other programs. It became safe then for others to make this change that maybe deep down they thought was the right thing to do anyway, but suddenly it was okay to do it once enough of your colleagues and peers were also uh, moving in the same direction together. Get that snowball rolling. You know, I think the, the risk of, of making this change isn't really equal among all scientists. So I could see how if you were a new assistant professor, your career really depends upon getting tenure and need to get papers for part of that. You might have more to lose or less of an incentive or more of a disincentive, I guess I should say, to try something new. And I wonder if some of the change might really rely on some more established researchers who their career is already set and they can take that risk without a lot of repercussions. I mean, the parallel to the admissions process is the same you as an admissions officer have to decide we are not going to look at this GRE factor. Because if you say, you know, you have to submit these scores and we're going to include them, then if, if I want to go to school here, I have to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And these young faculty who are trying to get tenure, they don't get to necessarily make the decision about which journals are an acceptable place to publish or whether a micro publication is a viable path to uh, getting tenure. It's it's the committee, it's the tenure committee that makes that decision. I do wonder as a grad student, you know, I'm looking for a postdoc, somebody just scans my CV. Oh, Josh has 17 publications. 17 micro, <laughs> I mean, nano publications. Was this going to be called the micro journal? I was a microbiologist, so maybe I could have snuck it in there. But. You should have done it. <laughs> you should have done it. Oh, that means micro, like one figure, not micro. Like Ten years too late. You know, one other thing I wanted to say, Dan, changing the subject a little bit, I thought it was really interesting that John talked about the contribution of busyness as a detriment to making some of these changes. Do you see that? Is, is busyness a problem for researchers? No, absolutely. I think busyness is a problem for all of us, Dan. I think I heard this somewhere. I don't remember where this came from. But that, that busyness can be an enemy of creativity. And we're going to talk about this quite a bit on a future show, actually one of the things we're going to do when we're out in Madison is we're going to be recording a webinar and talking to a grad student named Mike Morrison, who has spent a lot of time thinking about ways to make better posters and really revolutionizing the way we think about how we present our results in a poster session. And one of the things he mentioned that I think 
is really parallel to what John talks about is maybe we can all agree if we were having a conversation over beers that, you know, poster sessions probably could be better. Yeah, we all agree about that. But when you sit down to actually do a poster, what do you do? You take, well, okay, what's the template from the last one I did? Or, oh, could somebody send me their PowerPoint template? I have to print it by tomorrow. Get it done. (laughs) So you just clone what you did before because you don't really have time to reinvent the wheel. And I think that's sort of what John was alluding to, the fact that, you know, in some cases, maybe the journals are using this busyness of the the scientists who are publishing with them, uh, using this busyness against them, because they don't always have time to think about ways to revolutionize the publishing system. They're just trying to get their work done and run their lab and get their papers out and get their tenure. Um, so they don't necessarily have the time and space, even though they might acknowledge there's an issue and have frustrations. There's not the extra energy required to do something about it. How did you feel about the the provisional approval of a method before starting your research? I thought that was fascinating. You know what that made me think about was I teach some basic biostatistics to to pre-graduate and, and first-year graduate students. And one of the things we talk about, and I will say, Dan, this is not something that I think I did a good job of as a grad student, but something I've learned after the fact is ideally when you're thinking about ways to statistically analyze your studies, what you're supposed to do is plan out what type of experiment am I going to do? What's my experimental design? And then you think about as part of that, what's the, what's the statistical analysis that would be most appropriate for data like the data that I'm going to collect in the volume of data that I'm going to collect? Before you've collected it. Before you collect a single bit or byte or sample of data, right? Because because it's an intellectual exercise. I mean, the type of statistical analysis doesn't require actual results. You can think about, okay, this is the type of analysis I should do. And then you do the experiment, and then you implement that statistical analysis to the data you collected. But that's not what we always do, right? It sure isn't, Josh. <laughs> and it causes problems. Yeah, and it's. I think it's pretty obvious what the problems are of waiting and finding the right test after the fact. Or continuing to add samples until you get that level of significance <laughs> oh, you I'm knew you were hoping for. 0.052, if I just add three more mice, then... Exactly. Uh, but, I th- but I thought that was really similar to what John was talking about. Here, and a big advantage to a model where maybe you've got a great idea for a type of experiment that's going to get at a really important question or test a really interesting hypothesis that could have a big impact. So that's where the peer review comes in. They're like, yeah, this is definitely a study worth doing. And this is a great rigorous way to do it. Yeah, this is something that we in the field want to know. And we agree that if you take these steps, we will find out true or false this hypothesis actually makes sense. Yeah, but the way we do it, the the way the only way it gets published, it, it depends on what the results are. Right, we go fishing until we find something that is positive, and that introduces all sorts of problems. And, and it comes back to the idea that we don't publish negative results, and so as a graduate student, how many times did I do an experiment that I should not have wasted time on because it's been proven a hundred times by other people that it, it, there's no effect? I I added this drug. It doesn't do anything. I could have avoided weeks, months, tens of thousands of dollars, whatever it is. Yeah. And, you know, the cynical side of you, and and I do do wonder this. Uh, John was talking about this, you know, the ways journals make money, that they want to publish things that people will buy. (laughs) 
I guess you know, studies people will buy and maybe negative data doesn't sell journal articles. But it's weird. It, I mean, <laughs> it seems a little different to me than like People Magazine on the shelf. It absolutely is. But but it's also weird because as he pointed out, the internet has a way for us to put things on. We we put a podcast up every few weeks for a very small amount of money, right? It takes yeah. us some time to put together, to record it, to edit it, to put it up. But it is not a $100,000 contribution to the internet uh, to put this up. And I don't think that journals need to be an expensive process. I think peer review is something that the reviewers are doing for free. The authors are writing for free or they're using their grant money to do it. And, and pay, paying the journals to, to submit, there's, to There's publish. no distribution problem anymore. There's no cost to printing on paper. And so I think it's, it's right for a change and it's time for a change. Dan, every episode of Hello PhD in its uncompressed form, is saved on my computer right now. And in the cloud, I hope. And in the cloud. So if we can afford that, <laughs> we could prob- uh, the journals could probably afford to, to save more PDFs. Well, I thought it was really fascinating to, to really hear not only that there's a problem, but I'm glad to get this information out to maybe some other folks in academia who are doing research, thinking about publishing, just to at least be aware that there are some people thinking about this and there are some other options. Well, I'm interested to know, you spend a lot of time with early trainees, early scientists, um, post-bac or first-year graduate students or whatever it is. Are you going to let them know about the concept of open science and some of the resources that are available? Is it something that you've talked about before or is it something that you think is important to them? It's not, but it absolutely is something I'm going to add as we talk about topics like publishing and authorships and study design. Because this might be one of those generational changes. This is the type of thing that we old old guys look at like, oh, that'd be interesting. And, and I think you and I are far enough outside of the traditional tenure track that we're not threatened by these types of conversations. I'm not scared when you say, we should just publish on the internet. But I think there are plenty of people who are, are part of the the main bastions of academia that will push back against this. Students coming in are not afraid. And I think knowing that there are these other opportunities as they graduate, as they take jobs, uh, as they start making hiring decisions, I want this in their minds. Yeah, and I'm so excited that we're talking about this this topic now. I think maybe this is going to be a theme for us over the rest of 2019, at least, is to think rethinking how we communicate our science, whether that is how we communicate our results through publication, whether it's how we present our findings through scientific talks or poster presentations that, you know, really it is time to step back, see things from the 30,000 foot view and think, well, just because this is the way everybody in my lab has done this or the way my PI has done this doesn't mean it's the only way and doesn't even mean it's the most effective way. And I think you're absolutely right, Dan. I think generationally, it's the new trainees that might be able to really lead the way and try something new that maybe your lab might adopt. Maybe you'll be the first one to try something like this. You bring it to the attention of your PI or the other people in your lab, and and maybe you're doing the type of project or have the type of result where, you know, it's not leading to a big study uh, that's going to lead to a seven-figure paper that's going to go in a big journal in your field, but maybe it's interesting and maybe it's important. I mean, it probably was, or else why would you have done the experiment in the first place? So maybe it starts there and you say, hey, you know, we could publish this in this micro journal that I heard about. And you introduce maybe a whole department to a new way of publishing. It's going to be amazing, Josh. 
when all science is communicated via podcast. <laughs> I'm, so? not, I'm not sure if that's the most efficient way. To <laughs> this week on the show, weekly supervised deep learning for a whole slide lung cancer image analysis. Brought to you by... <laughs> no? Uh, can I play that at 2x speed? Yes. Okay. Yes. The figures are going to be tough. It's going to be really <laughs> tough to do the figures. And then we have a green line. It's going up at 30 degrees <laughs> oh, for about one inch. And everybody <laughs> throws their phone against the wall. <laughs> for the colorblind folks in the audience, it's a dashed line. Wait, <laughs> if you're just, okay, okay, that's enough. All enough, right, Dan. Well, enough open science for one night. Well, this has been fascinating, and I think this is a topic that we will probably revisit in the future, and we would love to hear from any of our listeners that have any experience publishing in some of these different types of journals, whether a micro journal or one of these uh, where the peer review is done up front with the methods. We'd love to hear about your experience, or maybe there's a different type of journal we didn't discuss today. If you're open sourcing your lab notebook, if you're open sourcing code that you wrote, any type of uh, sharing that goes beyond what we traditionally think of as the the paper level sharing is something we'd love to talk more about. Yeah, we talked a little bit about preprints. Yeah, a long time ago. A long time ago. So it might be worth revisiting uh, that episode as well. Absolutely, Josh. Well, if you have questions, you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or send us a tweet at hellophd. I think we even have a Facebook page where you can leave a message. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button. We appreciate the beer money. Uh, This guava thing didn't quite work out. Thank you for the ongoing support from our patrons. All right, Dan, it has been a pleasure as always. I'm going to send you back out into the breezy, rainy weather, but travel safely. All right, and we will see you in Madison. See you in Madison. Madison.